Hey, man, it's me, Kevin Smith. Are you listening to the right podcast? Because you're supposed to be listening to Three Guys in a Flick. Are you listening to that right now? Then you're in the right place. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. If all the animals along the equator were capable of flattery, then Thanksgiving and Halloween would fall on the same day. Welcome back. You are listening to Three Guys in a Flick. This is where we review the good, the bad, and the absurd. Tonight's episode, Ocean's 12. Beware, spoilers. Coming to you from Francois Toulouse Lake House on Lake Como. My name is Don, and to my right, we have our comic book guy, John. Look, it's not in my nature to be mysterious, but I can't talk about it, and I can't talk about why. And to my left, we have the professor, Ken. Do I look 50 to you? Only from the neck up. And joining us for her second time, this is Ivy. Hi. Just like Topher Grace, I'm back for a second time. I love it. Oh, oh Topher, you didn't have to go all Frankie Muniz on us. And get amnesia. What? Get amnesia? <laughs> no, Frankie Muniz. He, he has amnesia. He doesn't remember his... He doesn't remember. He remembers pretty much nothing from his Malcolm in the Middle days. Who does? Frankie Muniz. Oh, so what does that have to do with Brad Pitt saying you didn't have to go all Frankie Muniz on his hotel room? I don't know. That's oh. a line. Yeah, you didn't hear that. Oh, maybe he went. Maybe oh, he maybe if you had watched something. the fucking movie, you would know what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, all night. That's what you're gonna get. This is gonna be fun. <laughs> yes, uh, and and for our audience to understand the joke that you're talking about. Uh, there was one of us that didn't watch our movie. We didn't do the homework. But I've, I've seen it. I think I like to think that I represent the average viewer of movies. And you know what? We're excited to get into it. Tonight we are talking about Ocean's 12. Ocean's 12 uh, was my pick. And I was thinking I wanted to do a sequel to a movie that we had already done. And so there were a couple of choices up in the air. And then uh, we went to a party on saturday and we ran into ivy who had already come on and done oceans 11 and i said hey do you want to do oceans 12 and she said yes i will totally watch the movie and everything and i said great and so here we are talking about oceans 12 and professor you watched the movie yes yes i did comic book guy you watched the movie yes oh of course i did ivy did you watch the movie <laughs> no I will say that I did finish the movie about an hour and a half ago. I get it. I absolutely get it. So that gives Ivy a pass since she's seen it before as well? The only reason why Ivy gets a pass is because she's our guest. And if I didn't give her a pass, I'd have to listen to the comic book guy all night long saying, she's our guest. So, welcome back to the show. Thank you. <laughs> so happy to be here. It's going to be a zesty night. <laughs> Released on December 10th, 2004, Ocean's 12 was directed by Steven Soderbergh. Screenplay by George Nolfi. And it stars George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Andy Garcia, Don Cheadle, Bernie Mac, Julia Roberts, Casey Affleck, Scott Kahn, Vincent Cassell, Eddie Jamison, Carl Reiner, Elliot Gould, 
and a bunch of other marks. How'd this movie do, Don? This movie was made for $110 million and looks to have brought in $363 million. What did you feel of the casting this go-around? Uh, well, it's the same cast, just with uh, European people and Catherine Zeta-Jones. Uh, ironically, though, did you guys catch Albert Finney? Yes, absolutely, as soon as I heard his voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Uh, Two, within two weeks, we watched two Albert Finney movies. I don't Crazy. think I, I don't think I would have caught it had we not watched Big Fish. Uh, comparing Ocean's Eleven to Ocean's Twelve, were there any characters from the first movie that delivered just as well as the first movie, or under delivered or over delivered? I thought that the cast had so much chemistry from the first one that it just spilled over into the second one. So I was, I was happy with everyone in this cast. Um, I know that this movie sometimes gets a lot of uh, grief and, you know, some of it might be deserved, but I personally think that it's underrated and I really enjoy this one. I think that the uh, the essence of the characters were certainly represented throughout the movie in, in miscellaneous moments, not necessarily overbearingly. So we have uh, the, the role reversal of... Uh, Rusty and Danny with, you know, pursuing the girl, you know, those roles are, are reversed, but, you know, having everybody else being who they are, I, I think that their essence is there. And I attribute that to the writer, uh, Jack Golden Russell, because he wrote 11, 12, 13 and eight. And so that's about all he's done. That's it is just the oceans movies and having him being throughout the thread of that, I think is what allows us to have the essence of these characters represented in different miscellaneous moments of the movie. I felt I'm looking through my notes from the first go around of this movie. And I definitely mentioned that Bernie Mac is not um, in this movie as much, which I was a little bit sad about. I grew up really liking the Bernie Mac show. And I think he brings a really good comedic element to the squad. Um, And I think he was only in like one or two scenes in this movie. So that was kind of disappointing. Um, but I'm assuming he had something else to do. Was he in some other like movie or show at the time? Do we know? I did did not research that. It probably could have been the Bernie Mac show. I, I, I chalk it up to availability as well. Yeah. Um, That's the only, yeah, that's the only thing I could imagine because Bernie Mac was such an integral part of the first one. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And he's an integral part of the third one. So gotta be, gotta be fucking scheduling. I love that you brought that up, Ivy, because Don and I were discussing before the podcast one of my issues with the movie, which there are many, was that we take a talent like Bernie Mac and we have him in jail for the whole movie. You know, he has a great beginning part with Terry. I really like the interaction with him and Terry in the beginning, but the rest of the movie, we just waste him. So if we chalk it up to availability, it's understandable, but why even have him in this movie at that point if you're just going to have him in the jail cell? Because he's still movie. there. He's still you have to have ensemble. him. Yeah. And it's he like has to tease. deliver that classic line. Your wife said that he said it was Ocean's Eleven. Now I'm a private contractor. <laughs> yeah. My other feeling about this movie is, you know, we got great dialogue from Danny. We got great dialogue from Linus. And we got great dialogue from Rusty. The movie really focused on those three, and we got little bits and pieces of the other characters, whereas in the first movie, I feel like we got more from every one of the characters. I agree with that, too. I feel like it was definitely more centered on that, like, holy trinity. Mm-hmm. And you, I mean, we get little bits and pieces of people's personalities from the first movie, but they're not as developed. 
I almost feel like this movie was kind of following Matt Damon's character, Linus, like his growth and becoming, I guess, a bigger depth of a character because he's in like some things from the last movie and they kind of allude to his past and him being kind of George Clooney or Brad Pitt's secondhand man. But in this one, he really takes a bigger role. It's funny that you bring up Matt Damon's role in this. Uh, From what I read... He didn't even really want to be a big part of this movie. He had just finished the Matt Bourne movie, and he was exhausted. He wanted to take a break, and he asked the writer and director to just give him a bit part in this movie, and they said, nope, you're going to be one of the central figures throughout the whole movie. Yeah, this this story definitely takes the focus off of Danny, and it's definitely put onto Rusty and Linus, but I think that because of what we got in the first film, the moments we have with everyone else, I think they might even shine more than the first film. And I'm talking about the dialogue and the conversations because a lot of the times we get all of them together. You know, in the first one, they all have their area of expertise. But in this one, they're all kind of confined in the same space. You know what I mean? And so the way they play off each other, the way it's written, I think it's absolutely brilliant. Did you know that the story was based off of a book? Uh, I think I had heard that somewhere. And I guess, you know, this is not something new. You know, there have been other kind of heist movies and things like that and sequels that they always kind of take the underlining story from another, you know, book that's unrelated. So this, I guess, was from either some story or some book called Honor Among Thieves. What do you guys think of Steven Soderbergh outside of Oceans? Oh, I think he's a great director. I think he's got a really good eye and uh, he's super talented. What other movies of note? As he directed. He, he's done Magic Mike. He's doing the next Magic Mike. He, he al- he <laughs> Classics. Also, he also did uh, Traffic, uh, Aaron Brockovich, uh, Sex Lies, and Videotapes. Those are his big ones. Of those ones that you mentioned, the only one that I saw was Aaron Brockovich, and I remember really liking that movie. That's another Julia Roberts movie, right? And, and Finney's in it as well. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we know from Clooney being on set is he loves pranks. Did you hear about some of the pranks that happened on set? No. One of them actually wasn't even Clooney. Before filming even began, Brad Pitt sent out a memo to the crew stating that you will only address George Clooney as his character Danny Ocean throughout the filming or Mr. Ocean because he was so into his character. So when Clooney caught on to that, he actually then got Pitt back by putting bumper stickers on the back of Brad Pitt's car that read, I'm gay and I vote, and small penis on board. (laughs) Those rascals. So silly. (sighs) Is it trivia time? Why, yes, Don. It would happen to be trivia time. Have you listened to it since we've added the trivia music? Probably not. Yeah, okay. Uh, That'd be a no. Yeah, I got it. She didn't. Didn't didn't even watch the movie. I was going to, oh, you beat me by half a second. (laughs) In our continuing pursuit to crown a master of movie trivia, I have prepared a series of questions related to today's movie. Please wait until I finish each question before answering. Three years prior to the movie, Isabella had a big breakthrough in the Bulgarian case. What did she find? A A super, a a boot, a boot print. The, the left heel was worn out. I'll give it to you, Don. A boot print. What a about, really good one. Left heel worn down. What about the hair fiber? Well, you could have brought that up too. I am right now. 
But he was first How about with the a boot print. Cheating line. I boyfriend. said. I said the. Oh, did you get that one? Shoe print. <laughs> What's the difference? It was a boot, not a shoe. It's a boot, <laughs> Mr. Hammond. I'm the judge. I hey, professor, you feel my pain now, right? Bunch of bullshit. Oh, I fucking love it. Hit it again. Three weeks prior to the movie, Danny introduces himself to a bank employee using what name? Miguel Diaz. Very good. What did Danny say his profession was before he retired? He was a banker. He was a high school basketball coach. Well, that's right. High school basketball coach. You are on fire tonight, Don. Yeah, I, I wish know. I had watched the movie. Danny and Tess are celebrating a marriage anniversary. What anniversary specifically? Three year. Their second three year anniversary. Yeah. Yep. It, it's their second, third anniversary. When we first see Frank, what is the name of the business he's in? <sighs> nails. He's on the wall. Frank's Nails. They're close. Frank's. Screws. Nails by Frank. Oh. oh. That's funny. Okay. Oh, 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 because he owns a nail salon. That's what I was Very wondering. Very good. I remember I that. figured since he's, yeah, he's now big into nails because he owns one. No, and I loved that scene, and then he just wasn't in the rest of the movie. But it was a nice callback because he even talks to the guy in the first one when he's getting the, the vans. You know, I moisturize, right? You know, we're Go doing on. trivia, right? Hey, fuck off. Go on. In what city-state does Terry Benedict find Linus? Uh, Chicago, I believe. Or is it Boston? It is Chicago. Baltimore. He didn't say the state. Illinois. There you go. Goes to the professor. Oh, brother. <laughs> I know. What city is Rusty's hotel? Uh, it's in West Beverly Hollywood. Hills. Los Angeles. West Hollywood. No. But aren't those both neighborhoods in LA? They're all in okay, California. So. That's what I know. I just know that it said Los Angeles. Yeah, I think you're all right. When they showed it on the screen and they're going to his hotel, it, it flashed it, Los it, Angeles. It said West Hollywood, California. Oh, okay. Where does Rusty have the crew fly to first? Amsterdam. Very good. At the meeting with Matsui, who said, if all the animals along the equator were capable of flattery, then Thanksgiving and Halloween would fall on the same date? Danny. Danny Ocean. There you go. Uh, I did. Who said, when I was four years old, I watched my mother kill a spider with a tea cozy. Years later, I realized it was not a spider. It was my Uncle Harold. Matsui. Yeah. Very good. And for the final question, at the same meeting, Linus says, Oh, let the sun bear down upon my face, stars to fill my dreams. I am a traveler in both time and space to be where I have been. What song is that from? And for an extra point, what band? I don't know. Cashmere? That's your idea of a contribution? I don't even know what happened in there. Which do you guys know what band sang Cashmere? I don't even know the song. Oh, the I'm song looking at is Ivy. Called Cashmere. The song is called Cashmere. Really? By is it is it a band that I know? Led Zeppelin. Oh. No. Yes, Led. You've Zeppelin. never got the let out. I've probably heard a few songs. Oh, all right. There you go. So according to my tally, I believe Don, you may have actually won that one. So that would put us into a tie. Back at a tie. I would have won if I watched the movie. Yes, this is probably true. Ho sbagliato tante volte ormai che lo so già. 
Terry Benedict locates all 11 members of Danny Ocean's crew demanding they return $160 million they stole from his casino plus $38 million in interest. He gives Danny's crew a two-week deadline to return it. Short by half the amount, the group schemes to stage a heist in Amsterdam to avoid problems with U.S. authorities. They are tipped off by an informant named Mansui about the location of the first stock certificate ever issued. After a complex series of schemes, they find the document has already been stolen by the master thief, the Night Fox. Uh, so this movie opens up with Brad Pitt. Um, Rusty, three and a half years ago in Rome. And it we are introduced to Catherine Zeta-Jones' character. Isabel. And we know that she is some sort of uh, law enforcement. Some kind of agent, yeah. And we know that Rusty is a con man, thief. Potentially based on, as we are revealed to us, as she relays the fresh found information she has, it is revealed to us on the screen. What Rusty is looking at is what she just got done explaining. Now, according to the timing of all this, this takes place after Ocean's Eleven. So this is what Rusty has been doing since no, this takes place uh, three years before Ocean's Eleven. Oh, three years. I thought yeah. maybe because wasn't didn't Ocean's Eleven come out three years before Ocean's Twelve? The actual release dates of the movies, yes, were three years apart. But this, given the way uh, Rusty looks, I took it as this is way before Eleven. Okay. That's what I was trying to figure out, the timing of it all. The Night Fox contacts Terry Benedict six months before we are, we are um, into this story arc. And then fast forward to now, Terry is giving everybody a two-week chance. Right. Which I have a major issue with. Let's hear it, because this is one of my favorite parts of the movie. Uh, which I, I agree with you. Him meeting with each person is a fun ride. Oh, wait. It's one month ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's six months. Yeah. It's, it's one, one month ago. Yeah. It, it's a fun ride meeting with each person, but... Don, you usually call out whenever there's something that's impossible that's done in a movie that's just a crazy thing. And the idea that Terry can fly around the country and over the ocean in like one or two days to confront each person and none of those people decide to call the others and say, hey, hey Terry's going to come looking for you. Here's your warning. None of them knew ahead of time he was coming. Do you think that was a little bit crazy? Not in the least. You know why? Why? Because the tone of the movie is going to set how seriously you're going to take it. And we we know from Ocean's Eleven that there's a lot of things that are convenient. There are a lot of things that are kind of over the top. But we bought it because of the characters. This is just an extension of that. Realistically, this probably took them a week, maybe longer. But I don't need to know how long it took because I don't care. I think that when he meets with them, it just it speaks for itself. Yeah. The only reason why I don't think it took him a week and only took him days is because he tells each one of them you have two weeks. Well, actually, on screen in East Haven, Connecticut, Tess is told Danny has two weeks. And then we have the last one, West Hollywood, California. You have two weeks. In between that, he doesn't tell two weeks to anybody else. But I certainly had a, a beef with that as well because it's like, well, wait a minute. When does the two weeks start? It seems to sort of be a little arbitrary here. So in Connecticut, you're there two weeks. And then in L.A., you're in two weeks. 
maybe he pulled out, you know, all the other people. I, I don't know. But, you know, yeah, that took a little bit of time to happen. And at the same time, I'm also thinking that why are they calling each other? Why aren't they alerting each other? Because Danny, he's immediately on a train. Screw Tess. I'm out of here. I thought he was on he, his way home. Yeah, he was going to Tess. Yeah. I didn't think he was going to Tess at all. That's exactly where he I was I think going. he was running home. Yeah. Exactly. I think he was too, but why the heck was he so far away from her? Because, well, they had no idea that Terry was on his way. I get that, but, you know, he has flowers in his hand. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm thinking that's like a car ride away. Now, granted, he certainly got under the train, you know, immediately. He left the flowers behind, but at the same time, I don't know. I was kind of surprised that he was as far away as he was, and it did not strike me that he was running two tests, although that is how it certainly felt to me, but I felt like that he was on the run. I, I kind of felt like uh, Tess called him out in that he was kind of scoping another bank. He was thinking about, even though he's out of the business, he still had that urge to go out and check out a bank and see if there's a job available. So he maybe had taken a train or gone somewhere that he was kind of figuring out a new plan for a future possibility. <laughs> you didn't get that when she said, <laughs> you're spending all. our anniversary? It was, it was playful banter. Okay. And because what makes it playful banter is, to me, is when he's in the jewelry, he goes, well, I'm casing out a jewelry. And then the gal looks at him and he's like, no, I'm not. I'm just kidding. So it's just playful banter. That's all I took it Why as. did he go to the bank? To get out a loan, to take a loan out or to put money into it. I don't mm. think it's ever said. Uh, it could be a nod to out of sight um, because Steven Soderbergh did that movie as well. And, you know, it sets up that we are now following Danny and Tess in a normal life. They're, they're, he's retired, and mm -hmm. they're going to celebrate their second, third anniversary. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is how life goes. And then uh, Benedict shows up. And just like that, there's water in the basement, and the pilot Hang up, out. now. There's such a good part. Was he, did, was he walking with a cane, or was that a golf club? No, it's I a thought cane. it kind of looked like a golf club. It kind of looked like a putter, yeah. but that but but the putter was really small, so yeah. maybe it was a cane putter. It's a fancy cane. Yeah, yeah. He's all hoity. -toity. Because he never, when he walked, I don't know if you noticed, he never put it down. Like it never touched the ground. He just carried it. Well, I think if he, uh, I think if he touches the ground, he transports to the next location. Oh, that's a good the, point. The, I just I just fixed it for you, Thank bud. You. Maybe he's a little light on his feet. Maybe. Maybe. You just made it a four point five. Thanks for that. Ivy, what do you think of the bit where uh, Benedict goes after all of Ocean's Eleven? I mean, I just kind of liked it because it was fun. I just think it's one of those classic movie tropes that they threw into this movie. That's one of the things that I feel like sets apart this movie from the last one. The last one seemed more serious to me, and this one honestly just seems more playful overall. And I don't think it's necessary to really read into it. Who cares if he couldn't travel across the world? The point is that he's hitting every single one of the members. They're all feeling this collective, you know, anxiety that they've been found out. So, so now they've got to get back together. Absolutely. Well, well said. Um, out of all of the roundup, do you guys have a favorite one or one that stood out to you? I did have a soft spot for Livingston. He's... <laughs> He's, he's at the comedy club, and it's going poorly. And then after it's over with, he says, thanks for letting me finish. Thanks for letting me finish this. What can I say? You're a funny guy. <laughs> Makes me laugh every single time. Because he's so not funny. I know. Did you have one? I was actually stuck between two of them. One of them I really liked was the Bernie Mac one. 
where Bernie's in the nail salon. He's complaining. You can let go of my feet now. And uh, Terry makes a comment about you're always playing the race card or you're playing the race yep. card again. Yep. But really, I think my favorite one was when he called Rusty. Yeah, that uh, Rusty's Rusty's probably yeah. my goes, favorite. The goes, phone call bit. Yeah, last time you hung up on me, well, you said some nasty words. Yeah. But, I mean, all of that leading up to it, because uh, Topher Grace is throwing a fit, and he's trying to talk to him. Uh, and Topher Grace revising his role as Topher Grace. Um, what I really that appreci- was so good. What I really appreciated about that whole thing was Rusty, you know, being in this character of Rusty, that he didn't try at all... To say, oh, that wasn't me, that wasn't me. No, he just went right into it. You know, yep, you got me. Oh, of course. Oh, absolutely. That's, that's who Ru- Rusty, that's who Rusty is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 What about you? Did you have a favorite one? Do you remember them? No. Okay. H- how about Ruben? Do you remember Ruben? He's at the fortune teller. This? You couldn't see this? <laughs> oh. And my friend Rusty is running a hotel. I was wondering if you could send him something through me. Did you have one, uh, Don? <laughs> so uh, my favorite one was Rusty. My second favorite one was Basher with all the bleeps. Basher. Uh, my third favorite one was Livingston. Uh, my fourth was Linus uh, because of the end bit. I don't think you should tell my father. I don't think he should know any about that. He's so concerned, right? And number five is Danny because that's always fun. Six was the Malloys when they're at the dinner. I want engagement party. We need to say something about honesty and he, integrity. And he thinks. Everybody at the table but Turk. <laughs> and then the seventh one is Ruben, which is funny. Eight is Saul. Uh, nine is Frank. It's a funny thing that you brought up Ruben. Uh, I guess in that scene when Ruben is having his fortune told, did you notice that the card on the table was the five of wands, uh, which was out of the, I guess, called the, the Raider weight deck? You know what's uh, the meaning is behind that? No, no clue. No idea, but I certainly saw the card on the table. Go yeah. Like, huh. Well, technically, the card symbolizes an upcoming competition between two parts or two parties. So wouldn't that be a little bit of foreshadowing? Damn it. Only if you knew what the card meant without having to look it up. Oh, I knew it instantly. So he rounds everybody up. We then cut to them meeting and... This is kind of what I was saying earlier about just them having conversations and the dialogue. The dialogue here is so snappy and witty, and it goes back and forth at such a good pace. I really enjoy it. You're talking about the moniker bit? Oh, absolutely. And so uh, they figure out that they are too hot to work anywhere in this country, so they go abroad. And this kind of gives us a uh, kind of a hint uh, to what we can expect because when Rusty says we're going to Amsterdam, everybody's like, oh, okay, except Frank. Frank kind of is taken back and is like, did I hear what I just heard? And so he confirms with Rusty, we're going to Amsterdam. And Rusty's like, don't tell Danny. Right. So we know that something's, something's up. up. Yeah, something's up. And this leads us to one of my favorite scenes. I have a lot of favorite scenes, by the way. Uh, when they're on the plane. Oh, and... And Linus goes and wakes up w- Rusty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wants to be more in- involved. It's so good. Um, first of all, Rusty's all pissed off that he woke him up, right? What? What's wrong with you? And then they go through the whole thing, and at the very end, Matt Damon's like, I almost didn't come over here and talk to you. And Brad Pitt's delivery of this is just so perfect. I'd still be sleeping. <laughs> I just liked when Linus... I don't know if you noticed, when he went back to his seat... 
and sat down in his seat. He just looked like a, a giddy little kid, you know, so excited. Oh, yeah, he was all kinds of happy. That was something that I really liked in this movie was Linus's character development because I feel like in the last movie, he was just so new to the crew and he must have been just like kind of shy and quiet and I don't know, just like very stoic in the last movie. You could tell he was nervous about things, but he kind of just took a back seat in a lot of things and just had Danny tell him what to do and Rusty just told him what to do. But in this one, it seems like he was really trying and I felt like they kind of pushed him to be a little bit more of a bumbling character because he was actually opening up more. I felt like he was more comfortable among all the crew, and I really liked that. Oh, I agree with you. In the first one, he is used to being a loner, right? He's he's just a solo job. And so working with other people, that is a big arc that we get to see him fulfill by the end of 11. And then for 12, now he wants he's hungrier for that. And so very much that's what... That's his journey that he's on. He wants to be a more a more central person that is growing with that. And did you notice that after they get to Amsterdam, he's putting his suit together. He's trying to call Rusty. He sits down with Ruben is smoking a cigar. And he's like, what do you think of maybe me being like upper management? And he's filling the waters, right? And he is growing, which uh, I think he does have a great part in this. When... When he is trying to get a hold of Rusty, but Rusty has gone off to spy on Isabel, and he keeps trying to reach him. Did you notice the uh, the half wall filled with sticky notes ver- vertically going down? Yes. There, there must have been like 15 sticky notes with little scribbles on them. So, yeah, he, he is definitely actively trying to engage in this activity to his fullest. Yep, and he is definitely doing his homework. And I kept thinking, too... You know, it's part of Linus's character. Is it really that he feels he's ready? I I don't think he deep down feels he's ready, but he's still trying to live up to his parents' reputation. I think it's both. I think he is ready. I think he feels like he's ready. And yeah, he is definitely, I don't want to say bothered, but his parents' reputation is definitely, especially his father, mm-hmm. is definitely on his mind when he's doing stuff. It's very subtly hinted in the first one. It's brought out a little bit more in this one, and then it pays off in the third one. And it's a good, it's a good, it's a good arc. I know we see uh, Linus's father in the third movie, but did you know that it was scripted to have his father in the second movie? Yeah, and it got cut. Did you hear the two different people that were going to play him? Clint Eastwood and someone else. Clint Eastwood, they requested he wasn't available. They filmed it with Peter Fonda, and oh. they cut the scene. I can see that. Yeah. Um, I agree with what everyone's saying about the father figures. I almost felt that the energy that we got from Linus in the first movie was almost like he kind of resented his father a little bit or was more embarrassed to take direction from his father. And I can get that. I think a lot of kids won't take advice from their parents, but they'll find parental figures in someone else in their life. And I mean, Danny Ocean really plays that in this movie, especially And then I feel like Rusty almost takes on like an older brother type of role. So I think Linus is just more comfortable asking them for advice and kind of growing into the person he wants to be instead of just going directly to his father. I agree. Absolutely. This whole thing is building up for Linus to go with Danny and Rusty to meet with Matsui. What did you think of the meeting with Matsui? Again, one of my favorite scenes. And it's because of... 
the dialogue and just really the facial expressions from Pitt, Clooney, and Damon. Uh, Coltrane does a great job. Hagrid's good as Matsui. But uh, as soon as they start talking, Linus is completely lost. And there is one bit where I think it's after Brad Pitt says what he says. Uh, that Matsui turns to to Linus and says, Would, would you, you agree? Would, would, yeah. And Linus is stuck and he's trying to play it off and he looks up and he shakes his head like a pitcher shaking off a catcher. And uh, then George Clooney says something and the look of bewilderment on Damon's face makes me laugh every single time. It's been a while since I've seen this movie. I really didn't remember a lot of it. Uh, I think I just kind of glossed it over the first time I saw it. So when this scene happened... I actually paused the movie and tried to look up each of those things they were saying to see if there was some kind of hidden code in the words or if it was some kind of, you know, heist talk that they were doing, you know, something. I even put it into an AI and had the AI analyze. And the AI actually came up with explanations for each of them. Come on. So if you're sitting in a theater, you're going to whip your phone out and start typing that up if you're in a theater? No, but if I'm on a podcast and I want to be able to define maybe meanings of things, I try to do my research. And so I was trying to do research into each of these. And it wasn't until later I figured out it was a lost in We are supposed to be exactly where Linus is. Like, what the fuck? A uh, lost in translation, yeah. this scene. It still baffles me. It, what I like about it is it's a subtle callback to when, in the first one, when uh, Danny says, what do you think? And Rusty goes, well, we're going to need an Ella Fitzgerald, this, that, and the other. It's just jargon, that's right? What I, that's what I thought it was. And um, But that one had more of a meaning. Well, well, sure, because they're talking about different characters. This one is they are discussing the terms. And the fact that we find out later that it's a lost in translation gag is they did this to Linus on purpose. They did this to fuck with him to see how he would how he would react. And you saw how he reacted. He was all kinds of fucking nervous when he gets out there. And Clooney and Pitt kind of do the whole, you know, we're going to make you feel bad, but it's okay. You know what I mean? Well, they say it later on, too, that that's something Matsui likes to do to rookies. Like yes. Something, you know, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. So they have the meeting with Matsui. We find out that Matsui gives them a job to uh, steal the first ever stock certificate from a, is it recluse? From a freak. <laughs> Do we have to be the kind of organization that labels people? What, are you hosting a telethon we don't know about? One of my favorite lines. Um, Vanderwood. Yes, he is a recluse, and he has a stock that is worth roughly $2 million. The first- Euro. First stock certificate ever released. And then I like when he says uh, uh, 2.5 million euro. And then if someone goes, a piece? And then Clooney doesn't really have to say anything. And Casey Affleck, oh, who negotiated this? And I go back to the loss in translation bit. But, um, you know, they're trying to come up with a way to... Come up with $97 million. Well, not only that, but to break into this guy's house, Right. And uh, they can't, they're kind of stumped and the dialogue goes back and forth until Rusty remembers something that uh, she, that he learned from Isabel is that they. Let's lift the building. They're going to lift the fucking building. What'd you guys think of this whole bit? Well, I kept thinking throughout this whole thing, especially when Yen swims down in the tunnels and we see all of those big lift things 
that they had installed, you know, they're going to get $2.5 million. They've probably spent $500,000 on all the equipment, the drills, everything that they used to set up this whole thing. Uh, maybe. Or they got it because they know people. I think that those lifts, those were already in place. And the reason why I think that is because we have Isabel recalling about her sharing with Rusty about a heist where somebody had lifted the house and he and, and she suggested we need to go look at those pilings because I'll bet you anything that they've adjusted the height of those pilings to raise to elevate the building. So those were already in place, oh, good in, point. I thought. Um, I thought I took it as, uh, the Schumann special was done a couple of different times at different places, but that's how Rusty knew what to do. And she knows this because of the shot, uh, because they look at the safe and there's that putty and the guy goes, that's a heck of a shot. And she goes, no, that was impossible until they raised the house six inches. And she goes, do you know the name Max Schumann? She go and the guy goes no, and she goes well. The Americans did, and so that and then we cut to the actual crime taking place. I like the way Soderbergh cuts his movies, and this introduces us to the Night Fox because we get to the vault and they didn't have to break open the vault. Instead, it's already open and they have a little recorder and 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 the little uh, and 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 the little fox sitting there looking at them. I love the message while it's playing and just the looks on all of the guys' face. The total bewilderment. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it shouldn't bother me, but it didn't bother you at all that we didn't get to see how the Night Fox got in because they kept saying it's impossible to do it any other way. There's no other way to do it. Yet all 11 of them, you know, were beat out by one guy who got in there and stole the stock certificate. Yeah. So we never get to find out how he did it. And I feel like, again, that goes down to me to movie convenience. They just wrote it that he did it without explaining how he did it. Uh, I I personally think they don't have to explain it. It's not Tulur's 11, it's Ocean's 11. I think it was fun that we kind of got to see more of the planning on the heist in this one of the actual main characters that we're watching. Right. I think it's part of the fun of the movie that you have no idea how Toulouse did it. I think this goes back to to remembering that you're the viewer. I think you're supposed to be following along and be just as confused as the main characters. So we now know that uh, the Night Fox is on to the Americans. And uh, we're also basically given a quick hint or given an idea that he's likely the one that turned them in. Europol detective Isabel Lahiri is called to investigate the theft and realizes that she gave Rusty the idea of how to solve a complication of the heist with a description of a similar burglary during their earlier relationship. Surprising the group at their accommodations, she warns them that they cannot beat the Night Fox or his mentor, the mysterious master thief Lamarck, both whom excel in the long con. She's been hunting both for years, as well as stealing Rusty's phone. Danny and his crew discovered that the Night Fox is Francois Toulour, a wealthy French baron and gentleman thief with a villa on Lake Como. Danny goes to the villa and steals Toulour's paintings. He confronts Toulour, who reveals that he has exposed their identities to Benedict, breaking the code of silence among thieves. 
and hired Matsui to inform the crew about the stock certificate to arrange the meeting with Danny. Tulur is upset when Lamarck suggests Danny may be a better thief than him, so challenges Danny to steal the Imperial Coronation Fabergé egg. If Danny and his crew win, Tulur will pay off the debt to Benedict. We flash back to one month ago, and Tulur contacts Benedict, and he pretty much rats out Ocean and everybody. And I thought that was a pretty darn fantastical that Tulur had all of that information to give to Benedict. I, I, that, but it was part of the plot convenience of the story arc. I kept thinking, what is there a thieves union that they're all members of? So they knew exactly who all the Americans were. Why would they have revealed to anybody all of the American names? I feel like you can't trust anyone in a thieves world. Yeah. How would he have access to that? Okay. I'm going to break it down for you guys. It's in the script. So he's on the boat with uh, Jerry Wantrop's character. The Lamarck and Tallur and Jerry Weintraub from the first movie. And Jerry Weintraub is the one who fucking blabs it that it was Danny Ocean. Well, Danny says it himself. Tallur's rich and he's bored. You're telling me he couldn't pay someone to find out this information? Um, one of the things I thought was interesting in that flashback scene was they mentioned that one of the people on the boat is who gave Danny the idea to hit Terry Benedict. And so my thought was, I thought the whole reason why Danny went after Benedict was to get Tess back. Wasn't that he was tipped off about how much money he could get from him or about hitting his casino. I thought it was all about Tess. So it just seemed weird that, you know, there was somebody there who tipped Danny off. I wonder if maybe they just tipped him off who was dating Tess. Maybe. Maybe they he sent was in prison for a while. They maybe sent he had him sources and he was I mean, and he was so heartbroken once Tess left him. She might not have left him immediately for Terry. Right. So she probably had people like tracking her, found out that she started to date someone. Maybe uh Denny, that's his name, Denny Shields. Maybe Denny sent uh Danny the newspaper clipping and it showed Benedict and Tess being an item. Yeah, Who knows? Know. Maybe that was the tip off. So Benedict, he's going to show restraint as he contacts each one of Ocean's crew, and he's going to give them two weeks to pay the money back. Because Talor basically said, I will give you the information, but this is what you have to give me. This is what you have to do for me. I like the whole bit where he says, uh, how much is this information going to cost me? And he goes, nothing is free. And Benedict's like, who, who do you think you're talking to? Yeah, nothing, nothing is, is free. free. Right. And so, yeah, uh, Benedict has to show restraint. Well, I'm surprised he even does that because he's shown in the past that he just goes for himself. True. He's a selfish man. Matsui is picked up by Isabel. And then what follows is a very, very fun moment because immediately after that, then we get a knock at the door. Housekeeping. (laughs) Well, what did you think of the scene where they're interrogating Matsui and they're not getting anywhere with him. And Isabel walks in, whispers something in his ear, and he just starts crying. Yeah, I thought that was brilliant. That just shows what a badass Lahiri is. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and so we open the door, and they they do the rack focus, right? They rack focus Clooney. They rack focus Yen. And then uh, Rusty shuts the door. <laughs> I love just the way he just slams the door. And then his motion's like, everyone out, 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 whatever. And then so uh, Rusty and... Isabel reunite for the first time in three or so years. They have a little chat. Yeah. What'd you guys think of this whole bit? 
I thought it was playful and fun. So did I. I tried to watch for it, and I never caught it of when she snagged the phone. Uh, they, they uh, as soon as, when Rusty throws the pictures on the counter of him eating the ice cream, it kind of zooms into the phone, and then it backs away, so I yep. don't think it ever shows no. when she takes okay. it, just that she takes it. But the next time that Rusty reaches for it, and we see that it's <laughs> there's nothing there, and then he gives that like, Ooh. Oh, my God, it's so good. Well, one of the... Big jokes in the first movie was Rusty was always eating in almost every scene. Do you notice that when they throw the pictures on the table, the big picture they show us is Rustin eating an ice cream cone? Yeah. It is revealed to us that Frank is arrested because of his size 14 boot that was purchased with a stolen credit card that also was used in a nail salon. And so therefore, Frank is connected to the robbery the one of the stock bond. That's what I was wondering. I forgot how exactly they caught him. Yeah, he left a. He the left a yeah, he left a boot print, which seems very was amateurish the for them. The no, it, it's it's revealed during the the heist as as uh, as the police are looking at everything that they have found. There are two very specific dirty boot footprints on the ground in in the house. And so it's because it's a size 14 of a specific size of boot that was purchased with a credit card that was stolen. And it is also used at a nail salon. It links directly back to Frank. Well, there was only one or two really good nail salons in Amsterdam. Right. So process of elimination. But she, she wants to know about the Night Fox, right? And so she gives him the name. She goes, what did you do to piss him off? Blah, blah, blah. And they have no idea. She's and, gloating. Oh, absolutely. Because she wants to know, right? And um, so Rusty doesn't have any information for her. She leaves. And then this bit where everyone's confronting Rusty about this, again, the dialogue is just so funny. It cuts to Clooney saying, and you lied to us. And again, here we have our role reversal in that in the first movie, they end up confronting George Clooney, Danny, because the whole thing was about Tess and he kept Tess all hidden. Now we've got Rusty in the same position where he kept Isabel hidden. Right. Yep. Yep. So they got to sneak out of the hotel, but they're under surveillance. And so they sneak away, several of them, as soccer players on a football club. And is this why they put Yen in a bag? Was because they were sneaking Yen out of the building? They had a, they had, a, most likely they had a description of him and it turned out it's revealed to us the audience that it's it, it's a sketch okay right yeah um and this leads me to one of my favorite lines too um when turk and virgil are talking and they say how many football teams you know field a 50 year old man it's just all good writing oh yeah you know i was struck why are we hanging out at that train station because they're going to Paris. They're waiting for the train. Yeah, I, I just found it interesting that that, that was a, uh, a location to uh, propel the story along because it's just small talking. And there's a couple of different little tidbits of conversation that happen in there. Although it's revealed at the end of the movie that there is something else that happens at yeah. this time. Right. But aren't we also here where we find out that Yen's bag has been lost or the bag with Yen in it? Yes, they're trying to figure out and where, it's been sent to where Madrid is Yen. or something. Yes, where is Yen? And then we also have a reveal about Danny's age. And then the third reveal, what was the third reveal? There there was a there was a third conversation. Uh, it was uh Rusty and Linus. Hey, can I ask you a question? Oh, right, right, right. 
And so uh, now, because of Isabel's interaction with the crew and them trying to leave, they now have a name, and they now know who the Night Fox is. So they go in. We get a montage of the Night Fox. Right. uh, And it it reveals to us Francois Toulour. Right. And he was Moretti, right? He has all these different aliases, and everybody's, you know. I don't want to say they're afraid of him, but I love what uh, Turk says. He says, come on, guys, he's one guy, and he's French. Did you notice that when uh, they stole, uh, was it Tallur's paintings, the shape, like why they stole those particular four paintings? No. Uh, I guess apparently it was supposed to either represent a middle finger. Oh, I can see that. I you brought up earlier all the penises in this movie. It was a very phallic-looking design. I think just overall this movie has a lot of gags. Yeah. Like I said earlier, it feels like a comedy. <laughs> it very much is. Um, it's a, a very lighthearted, movie. fun, let's not take life too seriously type of movie. And I think that's what all of the Oceans movies are. I we do like everyone appreciates a good penis joke. Well, you know, you can't say happiness without saying penis. <laughs> happiness. <Right? laughs> I think when it comes to penis jokes, timing is important. I agree. We do get a, a very brief shot of Saul. And he's sitting at home and the camera just slowly zooms in on him as his lady friend suggests all these different things. And he he's just uh, turning all of these things down. And he's just sitting there looking kind of sort of, um, I don't know if he's sulking, maybe he's scared, but he's having regrets about, you know, leaving Danny's crew behind. Right. He's on his own. I right. felt it was a little bit of what was in the first movie, which is he wanted, he kept saying he wanted out of the game. But really, he didn't want out of the game. He still wanted to be a part of it all. Oh, yeah. He was definitely itching. So you could he, tell. he was going through withdrawals, I think, at that point. Oh, sure. Sure. And so Danny makes his way to Francois Tallure's place, and they have this conversation. A little chat. Uh, I thought this was this was pretty funny. Um, you know, Tallure's like, I thought about this for three whole weeks. <laughs> Because he's bored and rich. Every day for three weeks. Yeah. Uh, There's no possible way for anyone to tell if who's the better thief. Unless they're stealing the same thing. Right. And so he challenges Danny to steal the egg. And. Well, let me ask you this question. The challenge, the payoff is he will pay off the debt to Terry. Is he talking about the entire 198 million? Because I think that's what the check was for at the end. Yeah, uh, I I couldn't tell if it was that or if he was just saying how much you owe left the ninety million he would pay off. It was just the whole debt. Was the whole debt okay? Yeah, we get to watch a montage of the Fabergé egg, and this is our target that is going to be the center of attention for the rest of the movie, if you will. Right. This is the this is the competition, and this is uh, what sets it in motion. And this will let the mark know who the best is. Right. We have a moment where Isabel, she's sitting in her office and the phone rings and she picks it up, Rusty's phone, and it's Nigel on the phone. Uh, Eddie Izzard from, and we get to see him in three as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, I like this character. I, I think that he was one of the, uh, uh, you know, one of the... A very playful character. Yeah, but he's a, a, an acquaintance, right? An associate. So I like how he... Uh, Went off on Rusty's character, you know, and telling me he dresses like a gigolo and having a, a sexy assistant is so cliche. And then his sexy assistant, <laughs> right? Up, and would you get me a coffee or what did he say? 
Uh, something like that, like cappuccino or something. Do you remember that part, Ivy? I do. I think I thought the other guy was dumb for giving up so much information with Isabel not saying anything. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Who who does that? Who's big into this whole working with these big time thieves and everything and just gives all the information to whoever he's talking to on the phone when it's not rusty. That's right. how I felt that, too. That, that seemed a little too dumb, a little too on the nose. The other th- my other thought was you call Rusty's cell phone, Rusty doesn't answer. Does he not have Danny's phone number to then call Danny and say, well, I couldn't get a hold of Rusty? Maybe not. Maybe he was only dealing with Rusty. Okay. I don't know. She said Rusty's cell phone. It's true. And it's not out of the norm to have an assistant. So there you go. There you go. The crew begin to plan an elaborate heist to swap the egg for a holographic recreation, but Tulur gives the camera recordings from his villa to Lahiri, who deduces that they want to steal the egg through an intercepted phone call to Rusty. She then captures most of the crew except Linus, Tar, Turk, and Saul. Linus comes up with a second plan involving Danny's wife Tess, posing as a pregnant Julia Roberts in order to get close to the egg and swap it. They are foiled by Lahiri and a coincidentally present Bruce Willis, and the rest of the group members are captured. Lahiri is told that they are to be extradited to the U.S., while Linus is chosen first to be interrogated by the FBI agent assigned to collect them. The agent is actually Linus's mother who organizes the release of the whole gang. She points out to Lahiri that she will face consequences for forging a signature on a Europol form to obtain the necessary arrest warrants for Ocean's gang. So here's where it kind of goes, well, what's really going on, right? So they have this whole elaborate set that they're going to swap out the egg with a holographic. I love that they built an exact replica of the museum in like one day. Well, it was more like the uh, the podium. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, no, they had like that white model. The white model of the exact museum of the steps and everything built in one day. Well, who's to say that it wasn't already built and they know the person who had it and they just paid to get it? I don't know. They have that kind of connections. Don't think that they don't. They don't have that kind of money. Of course they do. But they do have those kind of connections because like okay. back at Ocean's Eleven, when we have Danny looking at, at the blueprints for the Bellagio and the security guard comes up, hey, would you mind shutting that someplace else? Oscar, point it down a little bit, would you? Yeah. So, you know, there, there's, you know, this, wow, he's really connected so maybe, maybe, but still, I did think the same thing. That's a pretty elaborate looking model that they got together in just one or two days. Yeah, well, you just go with it because you're not supposed to take it too seriously. That and the whole hologram thing. Do you not think that was a little weird? I thought it was a little iffy, but then again, I think it was supposed to be, right? Because when we get to the twist, it kind of yeah. explains it. Uh, but this is where Eddie Izzard's character comes in again and he starts saying, you know, you, now you owe me double. And Rusty's like, no, I've, I, I don't owe you double. And he's like, well, I left, I left you a message. I talked to your assistant. And that's when everybody finds out that Isabel has Rusty's phone. And right. Rusty never revealed it, which again brings up another complication in this movie, another issue in this movie. Nobody tried to call Rusty the whole time his phone was missing. Obviously not. Well, they're all together all the time. 
I don't know. I think they all kind of went off. And he was stalking Isabel and doing all these other things. Nobody tried calling him. Nope, I feel like not he once. Have even picked up. Yeah, like, Rusty. Rusty's pretty elusive, and he gives them sass whenever they try to question what he's doing. Maybe they're all just tired of it. Maybe. Speaking of Rusty, he ends up showing up at Isabel's flat and scares the bejesus out of her, and he asks for his phone back. I I dug this bit because uh, they finally get to talk, and he goes on about you know, uh, did you get that? feeling up your spine when you stole the phone, this, that, and the other. And he says, um, or she says, I knew it was you in the Bulgaria case. Um, Even before, like, he jumped out the window. Right. She says, you assumed it would have ended if you got if I knew, right? And the look of his astonishment of, you mean it wouldn't have? You mean the possibilities. But I kind of felt like... Even though she was acting angry and everything, she was kind of hinting to him there was still a chance. I think so. I, I kind of picked up on that as well. They had they had feelings that were unresolved. Yes, yes. And so, but at the end of it, she says, you know, when I see you again, I'm going to arrest you. Next time I see you, I'm going to arrest you, and I'm arresting Ocean and anybody else I recognize. And he says, fair enough. And he leaves. Yeah, and to, at this point, it's now become like a game between the two of them. Oh, a hundred percent. And then right after that, she goes and she forges her boss's signature on the 1077 form. What the what? I knew when she did that, it was over for her career. Oh, probably. Yeah. yeah. This is how they were going to write her out of being an agent. Yeah. And so it is now uh, day of, and I love the scene when Tulur gives Danny a fake wake up call and just the whole bit that happens after it. What'd you guys think of this? I was thinking about right before that where you have Talur and Isabel meeting discussing the paintings and it's just like, what a cheeky bastard he is. And oh, here's some security footage. I haven't, I haven't even looked at it yet. And, and that's why uh, she gets the warrants on the people that she does is because she has the tape. That shows everybody's face right up close. It's like, geez, Louise, how did he know that they were going to be stealing those paintings? Because he's got some really... He's got some, their faces take up the whole monitor. He's got some really good camera placement. I'll give him that. Yes. So they go in and. Uh, well, well, you mentioned the prank that Tallur plays on Danny Ocean. Do you know where they got the idea of that prank? No, where? That is the same prank that Clooney used to play on Julia Roberts in the first movie. She would have those fake wake up calls. And get her all woken up and on set. She, you know, she would get instructions to be on set by six a.m. when they weren't filming until noon or one. That's funny. What a dick. I'd be mad. There's a montage of everybody getting ready for the big day, where we have uh, the the uh, the crew lining up in front of the museum, and we see Talor doing all of his stretches. He's getting himself all prepped up, and then. Everybody gets arrested. Holy shit. This went to hell in a handbasket. Except for Linus, Basher, Turk, and Saul. Well, Saul, he hadn't made himself known yet, but sort of, yes. And right, Saul. right, right. He he wasn't there yet. Mm-hmm. Right. So really, it's just Basher, Turk, and Linus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they get back to the warehouse or whatever, and I love the line where uh, Linus is trying to come up with something, and then Turk is like, who dang made you Danny? 
I just thought it was just perfectly delivered. So they start running through the ideas of what they can do and all of these different names and they don't have enough people or they can't train a cat in enough time. So they come up with... What about Tess? We could do a looky-loo and a bundle of joy. And a bundle of joy. That's what it was. Yeah. It's a trifecta. This this whole thing didn't bother you at all that, oh, she just happens to look like Julia Roberts? Oh, I just went with it. I just went for the ride. Because I feel like if they could say she looks like Julia Roberts, well... Danny kind of looks like George Clooney, and Rusty kind of looks like Brad Pitt. I mean, they could have gone that route, too. They'd broken the fourth wall at that point. But they didn't. But they could have. But they didn't. I know. It's just the whole thing of saying that she is an identical twin of Julia Roberts, that really kind of soured for me, I think, this movie. Well, I just feel bad for you. It just seemed like a really easy way out. Eh, I, th- I thought I, I just went along with it. It didn't bother me. Not by any stretch of the imagination, especially when Bruce Willis comes into the scene. Mm-hmm. I thought that was absolutely hilarious. Do you know Cause why? Because he's, he's actually playing Bruce Willis. Yeah. Do you know why they had Bruce Willis in this movie? Because he wasn't Danny Ocean from the first movie? Yeah, because he was, he was originally going to be Danny Ocean. Yeah. yeah. What did you guys think about this whole introduction of Tess looks like Julia Roberts? I thought it was a little bit of a cop-out, but it was funny. It does go to what I think, Ivy, you were saying earlier, that this movie does feel more comedic than the first movie, like a little bit, I wouldn't say slapstick, but they were just giving us a more of a humor and gags. And if that's the case, and that's how we're supposed to take this movie, then yeah, I guess, you know, she looking like Julia Roberts. Okay, I'll go with that. I don't know. I just felt like this movie, there are some cheesy parts, but they're still feel good cheesy parts. Yeah. I'm not like moaning and groaning at these decisions i don't know if john is it seems like he is a little bit but i'm just kind of like oh oh, i mean that was a choice but it's funny i'm still enjoying laughing thinking that oh haha she does look like julia roberts and the fact that they got to have bruce willis do a cameo too and think that she is julia roberts until she gets found out and and it's actually set up way earlier when linus says hey doesn't Tess look like Right. So, I mean, the whole joke is set up and it's just paid off and it's and they do it on purpose. Right. They don't tell us who she looks like until they cut to the guy taking the reservation at the hotel. And he's just like, well, yeah, Julia Roberts is coming for me. It was the first time around that I saw it. It was almost an old brother forehead slap. And uh, since then, it's it's receded each time. It's like, "Eh, here comes the Julia Roberts part. All right. Yeah. and it gives us an excuse to bring Saul back into the game. And uh, they still try and go through with it and steal the egg. And, of course, they get caught. Did you catch the whole interaction with Bruce Willis when Linus says to Bruce, uh, we're, looking, we're looking to come off this pregnancy thing strong. You know, that little statue on the mantle smirking, smirking at you after a while. You know what I'm saying? You know what that joke, inside joke was for Bruce Willis? Yeah, because he's never won an Oscar. Yeah, because Matt Damon and Julia Roberts have both won Oscars. But Bruce goes, no, no, I don't know what that's like. Yeah, and what sells it is his fucking look. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, you little fucker, I don't know what it's like. So, that, uh, that, and I love the inside jokes that people kept making about the moment you didn't talk to her, I knew, she, I knew you were dead. They were making Sixth Sense references. Oh, yeah. Because they did that. Linus made that reference, and I think it was the museum curator made the reference. He's like, oh, yeah, you're really smart. 
I, I will say that before we get to that scene, I do enjoy uh, the incredulousness that we get out of Tess. You know, when she's first picked up at the airport and the second she gets into the car, we didn't know if he liked wind or, or aisle. And right off the bat, she's like, how long has Danny been in jail? Yep. Just yep. a couple of days, really. And and she knows, right? Because when they're on the phone, Linus Junior Varsity Caldwell, what's going on? You're not following any of the protocols that Danny has put into place. Danny's fine. He's in great spirits. He would love for you to join us after the end of this. You're, and coming, he would, al- you're and he, coming along real fast. Yep. And he's all, yes, I am. <laughs> and so they all get picked up. And now uh, the FBI comes. They start the interrogations. And the gal automatically picks Linus because he looks the weakest. Did you catch our subtle hint that something was up at this point with this agent woman that is talking to Linus? Pray tell. When she comes up to the jail cell and says, that's the one, that's, that's what I'm going to take, she was chewing her gum exactly the same way Linus chewed, out, chewed his gum throughout the movie. No. What? So that was supposed to be a tip-off. Really? That they were connected. That's not a tip-off. You didn't catch her. I mean, she was going to town on that gum. No. Hey, you have to go back and watch it. Hey, maybe Ivy can watch it with you this time. <laughs> Um, boy, that, that just keeps on delivering, doesn't it? It just keeps every it, time. It's the gift that keeps on giving. And so, uh, they finally break Linus and they all start to leave. And they're have, all getting extradited to the U S did you have any thought that that Linus would turn on them at all? No, I knew this was all a setup. Mm-hmm. I knew this was all part of the con. It has to be because we're already almost two hours into the movie and we have to wrap it up. And so, uh, they leave, and it's revealed to us that the lady agent was, in fact, Linus's mom. And one of my favorite lines uh, is uh, when she tells Linus, you know what? We're so proud of you. Uh, we both are. And then Linus is like, oh, you told dad? And then that just keeps building the joke. And even then, this is when we find out that uh, they were totally fucking with him at the Matsui uh, sit-down. They're they doing a lost a, in translation. Yeah, they pulled a lost in translation on him. I like the last little bit that Danny says to Tess right before they cut away. How was Bruce Willis? Yeah. What was Bruce Willis like? Yeah. <laughs> we get a scene of Lahiri following uh, Rusty. They drop him off. Everyone leaves. Yeah, what's up with this? That was way too conveniently contrived that everybody is now set free. They've got a Learjet ready to go. How did you arrange all that? It's called money. Holy buckets. Yeah. These guys are connected. I don't know why I have to keep telling you guys this. Uh, it's too fantastical. Well, that's what makes it fun. If you're asking yourself, how the fuck they get the plane there? You're way overthinking this movie. No? All right. Well, then, well, you know. Once again, I'm just telling you that this is what I thought. It's just like, how did they get all of this arranged and the Learjets right there ready to go? Like it was a part of the plan all the way along. It was a part of the plan all the way that, along. That I will agree with uh, what Don is saying because what they reveal next is they had everything from the moment from start to finish planned out. All of it was. And I think that is the the hardest bit for people to swallow about this film. Uh, but we'll get there. Yeah. Sometime later, Danny and Tess return to Talur's villa, where Talur reveals his glee at their failure. 
He explains that he stole the egg at night using his agility and dancing skills to evade the museum's heavy security. Tallur's celebration is short-lived when Danny reveals that his group stole the real egg while it was in transit to the museum and Tallur realizes that they were tipped off by Lamarck. A flashback reveals that Danny and Rusty had met Lamarck earlier when he revealed his confidence trick intended to humiliate Tallur and, at the time, restore to himself the Fabergé egg that he had stolen years ago but returned following his wife's wishes. Talur is forced to admit that Danny won the bet and gives his money for the debt to Benedict. As the crew pay back Benedict and promises not to perform any more heists in his casinos, Talur is seen in the background spying on him. Rusty takes Lahiria to a safe house that he claims has been lent to him by Lamarck. There, she is reunited with her father, who is revealed to be the man she has been pursuing for all of these years. Roll credits. So there we are with the, your father is alive and they get onto the Learjet and <laughs> Rusty gets his phone back. And then after he gets his phone back, we see Bruiser getting Frank out of the clink. And then we get this really cool shot of Tulur driving up to his house in the sports car. And I, I really dug that shot. I don't know why it just looks so classy, so cool. And then he's, and then Tallur is greeted by the maid, and uh, your guests are out on the veranda. What guests? And I thought this bit was playful and funny. Uh, Roberts and Clooney ham it up, and you know Tallur is just all kinds of excited with himself. He even has the egg with him when he pulls up. He's got that little case. Yeah, he mm-hmm. sets the case off to the side. Yeah, and uh, he goes in, and you know. He's like, uh, tell me I'm the best, and I'll tell you how I did it. And Why uh, don't you tell us about how you did it, and then we'll tell you you're the best. Did you catch what uh, Tess whispers into Danny's ear? What does she whisper? Uh, she whispers. I had to actually turn the volume up a little bit. But what she whispered was, just go ahead and tell him he's the best, but I know you're the best. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. And uh, we get the flashback of Talur breaking in. And I love how Clooney says, how did you get past my recon team? And it's Turk and Virgil arguing as Tulur <laughs> walks by. I will pay you a million dollars not to talk for a month. One month. So funny. Uh, the whole dance thing of dancing to the lasers, I guess uh, the actor really did that. He's some master of a type of a gymnatic, gymnastics type martial arts that he can do that kind of stuff it looked like he did it yeah so that really was him that yeah. scene went on for about two minutes too long the whole dancing bit yeah and i think it lasted for like two minutes and 15 seconds so you thought it could have been it done in 15 excessive. seconds the two things that bothered me with the whole laser scene is first of all they said earlier that the lasers moved at random mm-hmm. they didn't have any pattern but yet he could do this dance routine like he had memorized where they were going to be, but he couldn't if it was random. So he wasn't—he didn't know for sure which way the lasers were going to go. He was feeling it. Yeah, it could There's, be interpretive. The second thing is, and maybe I just don't know laser security as well, but I tried to look it up. Most lasers, especially in these kind of museums, work off of mirrors. And if you break the connection between the laser and the mirror, it's what sets off the alarm. These lasers were hitting the ground, were hitting the statue. There was no connection point. So what were they detecting that would have set off any kind of alarm? Motion. 
I don't know. How would a laser detect motion? When it goes across you? When it hits you? He was dodging it. Yeah, but I'm just saying it it had nothing to break a connection. There was no start to finish with the laser. There was just the, where it started and then it hit the floor, it hit the bit, you know. But if the laser hit the person, then the alarm would go off. But I'm saying how would the laser itself detect a person? Maybe it was heat detected. I don't know. That's the one thing I was wondering is maybe heat. But there were so much different heat patterns in that building or why couldn't he just wear something that then would would mask his heat signature? Who knows? So it just seemed a little, this whole laser thing just seemed, the whole purpose was just so we could see him do a fancy dance. Okay. I was thinking, why not just walk around? <laughs> I guess he could have. But maybe their motion, random motion plates, I don't know. But yeah, I I, I thought that the, uh, the, the whole laser thing was just for show and there was no logic to it. And at that point, it's like, all right, well, you know what? This is just showing us this one time why the night fox is so much better and always one step ahead of Danny Ocean. Right. Can we also talk right. about how much anxiety these people must have? Just like holding on to so much money and then having to have intense high security just to keep things safe and people can still break through them. I'm not cut out for that lifestyle. Well, I just felt bad about the guy who had his stock certificate stolen. He already had so much anxiety and the yeah. agoraphobia or acrophobia that he couldn't leave his house. Uh, imagine now someone broke into his house, what his condition must be. Two different people did too. Cause the night Fox stole it first. Yeah. But he, I mean, he wouldn't know that the two people had broken into his house just that his thing had been stolen. Well, unless they told him that yeah. both people, that would have been kind of a dick move. So Talur tells uh, Danny and Tess how he does it. And Danny's like, wow, Talur, you're the best. You're the best. Now, if you just get us our money, we can go. And then it takes uh, Talur a second, but he figures out that uh, Danny and Rusty talk to Lamarck. Mm -hmm. Now, this is where one of my questions comes into play. Uh, we got the whole Paris scene earlier, and that's what I think, Professor, you were talking about is what this is when they go and do all the stuff that they did. Did they know about the Night Fox and Lamarck and everything? Did they talk to Lamarck before they talked to Matsui? Because I think they already knew everything before they talked to Matsui and had already stolen the egg at that point because Lamarck had told him, this is what Talor is going to do. He's going to make this bet with you. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, they definitely talked to Lamarck first. Because... What I got the impression at the end was, is really Lamarck had set this whole thing up. He had basically aggravated Talur into going after Danny, knowing that then Danny would have to go and steal the egg. And the agreement he made with Danny to give Danny this information was, you bring me the egg. Well, if Danny knew all that before meeting with Matsui, then why'd they still go through with stealing the stock? Because they said... Uh, I think Lamarck said to him, you're going to have to go through some things and do some things and pretend like you don't know any of this to get to lure to make the bet and to get you the money so that he would get the 198. So they had to go through all of that to get to that point. Yeah. So it's revealed. It's it. We get a, a card second Thursday, six days left. And then this is where we realize that there's a double blind happening. And six days left, second Thursday, is when they are hanging around at the train station. That is when I think that, that it was on that same day, you know, because that's, that's where those two things align. And so with that, 
Lamarck, he wants to have Danny um, make it look convincing. And if Danny is able to pull it off, then Danny is going to have all of his debts forgiven. So they go onto the train and they make the switch. And if you notice when it's Linus, Turk and Basher trying to figure out what to do, the backpack sitting on the chair. They had already stolen it. But you're right, John. Lamarck says you have to put on a very elaborate show because you have to assume that Tallur is watching every step that you make. And he was. Do you know where they got the idea for this whole uh, stealing it before and all of that? Like where that came from in reality? Where? I guess in back in 1905, there was something called the Cullion Diamond and it used to be transported to different places via all of these security guards uh, and you know, put onto trains with just intense security. Well, that diamond was always fake when it was traveling with all that security. They were actually just sending it through the postal mail. Oh, there you go. So that was the whole idea as they're always, you know, and, and when they mentioned earlier in the movie that sometimes it e- they even display fake versions of the Fabergé egg to keep people off, I knew that, oh, this is must be what they're doing that, you know, the one in the museum is probably fake and this one it's traveling somewhere else. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, once the reveal is given to us, I, I can see why people are going, wait a minute, this, the timing doesn't make sense. And this doesn't, this, that, and the other doesn't make sense. But if you listen to the dialogue and you just go with it, 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 it works out. And the, the thing that kind of tips me off every time I watch it now is when they're all sitting in the jail cell, they all look at each other because they all know what's supposed to happen. You know what I mean? Uh, when Brad Pitt's getting arrested, he smiles. You know what I mean? So they knew what was going on, and I just accept it because that's who this crew is. You know what I mean? I was reading some of the criticism of this movie, and I think the number one uh, thing that people complained about the gripe you t- that you're talking about is that uh, knowing now that they had stolen the egg way before I mean it was what the first quarter of the movie first half of the movie kind of made everything that happened afterwards unnecessary they had already had the egg they could have won the bet basically at any time basically you know when he made that bet the moment they made the bet they said oh well here's the egg we already won so it made all that stuff irrelevant. Plus, again, you know, and I talked about this before, and I know you disagree with me, Don. I felt like it's a little bit of sloppy writing in that, you know, of course, you know, at the end it looks like they've lost, but no, let me write in that they already had stolen ahead of time. So, yes, they actually won. You write yourself out of a hole. Okay. I didn't take it as that. I, I saw it that they have an ironclad alibi that they were caught stealing the egg and they were arrested and the egg has been returned. And at no time did they think that the egg in the end was stolen by Danny's crew. I love how you bring up the alibi. That's a great point. And uh, Tulur says the contest starts when it gets to the museum. You have 48 hours to oh. steal it. So uh, we have to go through all of this to make Tulur think that he won so he would actually pay. You know what I mean? He actually has to lose this. And so that's why they let him go through all of it. That's why all of this happens. I think so. that. And they also really wanted him to suffer some kind of ego blow. 
Oh, sure. Because the whole point of this was Lamarck got pissed that Tulor was thinking that he could be the best thief in the world and outshine him. And so they had to dangle everything in front of him and then tear his world down. If was they had just revealed in the beginning, then he would have never made that bet and it would have just fallen to pieces. So uh, Danny and Tess leave and then we cut to Isabel and Rusty getting to this private island or this private house. Whose house is this? Uh, a guy who knows your father. It belongs to a thief I know in Paris. Yeah. And so we find out that Lamarck is in fact Isabel's, Isabel's. father. Mm-hmm. And potentially Rusty's future father-in-law. Man, what a Star Wars plot twist, am I right? <laughs> yeah, the, the man she's Oh, are you hunting. still awake over there? <laughs> Barely. Yeah. Yeah, the man that she has been hunting all this time turns out to be her father, who was forced not to see her, otherwise the mother was going to turn him in. Right, right. And I like uh, I like the bit where she says, where the hell have you been? And he was just like, waiting for you. You know, so a nice little reunion. And then we cut to uh, the gang getting back together uh, to have to play some cards. And this ending was very much just just a party, right? They all just got together, and that just looked like a lot of fun. Well, you think about it. There was two things that, again, something a little bit bothered me. But my first thought when I saw them playing all the cards is, now they don't have to worry about being together anymore because Terry knows. So now they are free to do what they want. But my other thought was, is it was announced that they were going to be extradited to America where they were going to face charges. So the American authorities know they did all this at the museum, even though that was a fake agent that got them out of prison. I still think the American authorities would know to be looking for them. I don't. You don't think that they have any charges to face because they were all over the international incident? Well, the... Linus's mom is actually in the FBI. Is she? I oh, thought she absolutely. Was no, both uh, both parents are. That's oh. what gives them the perfect cover. And Linus calls it out in the third one, right? Sorry, I don't have the most perfect cover ever known to man. Oh, I so, thought they were. Yeah, no, they it. no, they they did a little doodle doot in the oh, system yeah. and they're free. So they're free. Uh now when uh Benedict gets his check, which first of all, he really is the big winner of this whole movie. Besides Lamarck getting the Fabergé egg, he got not only the insurance payout, but the check for $198 million. So he got more than was ever stolen from him. Yeah. All he did was lose a little bit of face. Now, do you think uh, Talor playing gardener out in the bushes or whatever, do you think he's about to hit Benedict? No, but it sets him up for being in the third one. Yeah, I thought maybe he was going to try to steal it. He gets caught, and that's how Benedict works with him in the third movie. So earlier on in the movie, uh, one of the scenes that you mentioned that you really like was when Bernie Mac brings up, you know, they called it Ocean's 12. You know, I'm a private contractor and all that. And they're going through, I thought it was the Benedict caper and everything else. I kind of thought of it as a fellowship of 12. Oh, fuck. Really? And now it's time for John's. Moment. Okay, this time around, I'd say you're looking at a Frodo Baggins, a Samwise Gamgee, a Gandalf, an Aragon, plus an Arwen, and a Gimli, a Theoden, and maybe a Julia Roberts. 
This is the point in our podcast where I take whatever movie we are currently reviewing and compare it to the greatest movie series ever made, Lord of the Rings. So in Ocean's 12, Frodo is Danny Ocean. He's reluctantly put on a journey to save his crew from the evil that looms over them. Samwise Gamgee? Well, that would be Linus. Like Sam is to Frodo, Linus is a loyal and devoted member of the group, especially to Danny. Also, like Sam was often underestimated in Lord of the Rings, Linus is often underestimated and underrated by the crew, as well as us, the audience. But even though he is humble, his bravery and resourcefulness tends to be essential to the success of the group. And just like Sam's character grows and develops throughout the story, so does Linus. In Ocean's Eleven, Reuben was our Gandalf. In Ocean's Twelve, I would say Rusty's character is more of a Gandalf. Rusty assumes a leadership role within the group, providing guidance, strategic thinking, and expertise to the team. He also takes on more of a mentor role for characters like Linus, encouraging them to grow. When the group is searching for where to go on their journey, it's Rusty that puts them on the path to Amsterdam. Aragorn in Ocean's 12 defaults to the leader of the crew. In this case, that would also be Danny. So besides Frodo, Danny has Aragorn qualities. He is, after all, the king of the crew. That would make Tess his Arwen, as like Arwen did for the Aragorn, Tess comes riding in to save her love when needed. Gimli, well, that's still Basher. Gruff, grumpy, always complaining, but definitely comes through in a pinch. And like Gimli, even when the chips are down and the odds are stacked against them, he remains loyal to the crew and ready to risk everything. That makes our Ocean's 12 Fellowship Danny, Linus, Rusty, and Basher. Theoden in Ocean's 12 would be Reuben. In this movie, Reuben plays more of a background role, assisting the crew with what his kingdom is able to provide. Francis Talor, the Night Fox, he's my pick for Gollum. Like Gollum, Francis is very selfish, not caring about anyone else but himself and what is precious to him. Just like Gollum betrayed his community of river folks to get what he wanted, so did Talur betray the thieving community when he broke the first rule. To him, his reputation as the greatest thief is his precious, and he'll end anyone to have it. He's utterly alone, lurking in the dark, and that's the way he likes it. Sauron in Ocean's 12 would be Terry Benedict. He's the dark lord that looms over everyone. He's the one who is attempting to destroy their world with his two-week ultimatum. So what is the precious, what is the one ring in Ocean's 12? In Ocean's 12, the ring is represented by the Fabergé egg, also known as the egg of the Romanoffs. Just like the ring in Lord of the Rings, the egg is a coveted item. It represents influence and power, and it has the potential to grant its possessor immense power and control in the sense of superiority as the greatest thief. It's also an object of temptation and obsession, much like the one ring in Lord of the Rings exerts a corrupting influence 
causing characters to become obsessed and tempted by its power. In Ocean's 12, the egg becomes an obsession for the main characters, causing them to take great risks to obtain it. Also like the ring, the egg is a catalyst for conflict between good and evil. And there you have it, my comparison of Ocean's 12 and Lord of the Rings. Bring on the greats. What you got? I think that we have uh, the usual suspects, if you will, where they should be. And uh, I was not surprised to hear the names that we got. I think that having Talur being Gollum, I I thought that was appropriate. Uh, Sauron being Terry Benedict, I thought so as well. And for Rusty to be Gandalf, all right, I'll buy that too. So it all came down to the ring being the egg. And with that, I thought that that fell a little flat. The egg, I thought, was more of a neutral. I understand the motivation for the egg, but I I didn't think that it was necessarily uh, what was what was driving or, or motivating those people to do that. It was a goal. It was a task that was assigned to them. And so with that, I'm going to go C+. I think that the goal or what was driving them was the actual death threat, right? If they don't have Benedict's money, they are dead. And I think the egg was a device to move that forward. Uh, I did like the Gollum bit. I like the Gandalf bit. Uh, it wasn't the same as it was in Eleven. And I think you did a good job of mixing both up because it's easy for us to look at a sequel and go, oh, you know, it's the same same, thing. Yeah, yeah. But he mixed it up, and I thought you did a good job. I'm going to give you a B minus, my friend. I will take it. Ivy, you have any thoughts on my comparison? Wait, you've seen Lord of the Rings? That is another movie that I've seen once. Um, But I'm not going on a podcast and pretending that I know all about it. So I give you... A B plus just for pure effort in the the face of adversity. Because I know that everyone groans when this bit comes on. I did notice you dozing off a couple times during my presentation. I I was able to uh, get a quick nap in. So I appreciate that as well. And that was John's. Moment. All right, what do you guys think? You guys ready to rate this flick? I'm not quite ready to rate this flick. I want to know, did you have a favorite scene? I can narrow it down to, okay, the whole thing's my favorite. How about that? Listen to you. Any thoughts? Anybody else? I don't know if I have a favorite scene, but I will talk about the scene I think that impacted me the most. And I've said it on previous podcasts, anything that's like a daddy-daughter moment or anything that kind of, you know, really elicits any kind of feelings from me, uh, I will kind of point to those scenes. And I thought when Isabel finally meets her father and they have their whole thing and then they hug, that was kind of pulled on my heartstrings. So I kind of leaned towards that scene. All right. I did not see that coming. Ivy, do you have a thought? Or what do you remember when you think about Ocean's 12? Is there any scene that just kind of sort of clicks in your head? Oh, yeah, that's Ocean's 12. Do you have anything like that? And if you don't, that's okay. Is it? Shut it. Honestly, when I had to think about this movie again, the first thing I thought of was the Lost in Translation scene. And I think what this movie comes down to for me is that it's just it's just a good time. Like there's just a lot of banter. There's a lot of one-liners and just comedic jokes throughout the whole thing that I'm just kind of like chuckling to myself the whole time. 
maybe that goes to show that I feel like the writing was a little bit lacking in the sense of a plot line, but it was funny and fun to watch. Sure. Professor, do you have one? The one that comes to mind for me is uh, the daddy-daughter reunion at the end. You are all like girl dads in a sense because that scene is really all resonating with you. Well, these two. I like the whole fucking thing. So. Did you say? Did you not like the daddy daughter scene? Oh, I thought it was very tender. Uh, I like I like the whole uh, reunion bit. Absolutely. All right. How about now? Are you guys ready to rate this flick? I'm ready to rate this flick. John, do you have any thoughts about rating this flick? Do you want to rate this flick? A uh, Roger and Ebert with a rhyme time. If you think we have enough guys, I'm in. Uh, Professor, how do we do our ratings? We do our ratings on a scale of one to five fucks. Five fucks is a movie that we think is cinematic gold. Anytime somebody says, hey, you want to watch Ocean's 12? Fuck yeah, I do. A one fuck movie is a movie where you watch it and after you're done watching, it's like, I doubt I'll ever see that again. There's just no desire to ever see it again. And what's a zero? A zero fuck movie is you get done watching it and you're thinking, oh, for shit's sake, what the hell was that? You know what? I want two hours and five minutes of my life back. Or in other words, we just don't give a fuck. All right. It is customary here on Three Guys that the guest goes first. So hit us. This one's tough because I really think that Ocean's Eleven is one of my favorites, if not my favorite movie. And that's why I was on the last one. But this movie just feels different. I think with Ocean's Eleven, if I can recall, I think I gave it five because if I ever saw it on a TV, if I was scrolling across channels, I would stop to watch it. That movie is so satisfying. I could fall asleep to it, but I could also be totally enthralled by it and watch it with such good attention. This movie, even the fact that I only watched it once and couldn't bring myself to watch it again in the last few days, it's fun, but it just, it, it loses the plot at so many points and it's not simple enough to keep my brain enjoying it. Like even when we're talking about all these characters and we're just kind of thrown into this whole thief network and everyone's connected in some way. And then it's like, why is Matt Suey there if not just to have that fun scene? Um, why does Lamarck have to be uh, Lahiri's dad? I don't know. Just Just random things that I feel like were confusing me along the way and I would laugh along the way but it didn't have like a clear plot and a clear climax in my mind. It just kind of felt like, oh, we're doing this now. Oh, here's this other person. Um, so for that reason, with the amount of questions that I have at the end of the movie, I still think it's a good watch, but I don't think it would be something that I would ever suggest myself. Um, so I would give it two and a half fucks. Two and a half fucks from Ivy. I guess I'll go next. Well, you did pick the movie. Since I'm the one that picked it, right. Uh, I, for one, think that Ocean's 12 is a very underrated film. Uh, I think that the tone of the film dictates how seriously you should take it. And as soon as this movie starts, it's in the same vein as the first one. And it's just, they're just a lot of fun. The conversations are subtle and brilliant. It really is just like hanging out with your pals. And uh, sure, the story kind of gets lost and the plot kind of gets convoluted a little bit. But I'm laughing and having so much fun. And I know that Danny and his pals are going to win that I just don't care. The soundtrack is on point. 
Steven Soderbergh's direction is on point. I think everything about this film is fun. Do I like it as much as Ocean's Eleven? No. Come on. For Ocean's Twelve, I am going to give it four and a half fucks. That was a little higher than I thought you were going to go. I love this one. I was thinking 4.25. That'd probably be you. Yeah. But I thought wrong. Since you thought wrong, you're next. Right on, baby. Ocean's 12. I have not seen this movie in a couple of years. I think this is the third time I've seen it. In watching the movie again, I did enjoy the camaraderie that we have with the characters. And the uh, swagger and the style of Ocean's 11, I did not see as prevalent in Ocean's 12. Ocean's 11, just it just ooze with class and style and panache. Ocean's 12, I thought it was a lot more playful, and they are certainly off balance for the at least half of the movie with things apparently not going the way that they're supposed to. The fantasticalness of Tess pretending to be Julia Roberts and then throwing Bruce Willis in with it as well. I thought that that was, you know, a fantastical moment that was, it was fun, but from there it, I, I felt like that it was getting a, a little too zany, a little too wacky. And I didn't necessarily believe that they were going to be getting off. So Scott free afterwards. And the fact that they did get off. So Scott free because, <laughs> because Linus's mom springs them. It's just like, and of course she did. So I, I, I did not uh, uh, like that kind of an ending, ending as much. The uh, stylishness that we are used to in Steven Soderbergh is certainly there, but the, uh, the writing that we do get is, I think, very, very fun to have the characters interacting with, with each other because it is really fun to watch them interacting with each other. As for the story arc of the whole Talor bit, it's just like, eh, whatever. I sort of felt like that it was, I don't want to say that it was a throwaway, but, you know, this super thief that always that was always one step ahead and, and always, you know, masterminding, masterminding, and they were able to, you know, expose Danny's entire crew so completely. It's just like, uh, whatever. So with that in mind, I think that it's a fun movie, it's a good watch, it's an easy watch, but it does not have nearly the satisfaction that I get out of Ocean's Eleven. And for this, I'm giving it 3.25 fucks. 3.25 fucks from the professor. All right there, tough guy. Would you like me to go next? Sure, considering there's no one left. Before I go, you've been on a streak lately. Yeah, I'm afraid to guess this one because, well, you're wrong about everything. So, no, I'm just kidding. You've overestimated me. You've underestimated me. I know. I'm just like all over the place. All right, you're giving Ocean's 12 2.5 fucks. Ivy, would you like to take a guess at what I am giving this movie? I would say you're going to give it a 2.75. 2.75, okay. With a star-studded cast comes Ocean's 12, a sequel, but its luster compared to its first feels unequal. Clooney, Pitt, Damon, all playing their part, yet something's amiss right from the start. In Europe's heart, the heist is set, a debt to repay, a dangerous bet. From Rome to Amsterdam, the crew does roam, a story that strays far from home. 
There's Rusty and Danny and Linus in the mix. Their banter is sharp. Their chemistry clicks. Catherine Zeta-Jones, the cop in a chase that is thrilling, but the plot at times is less than fulfilling. Yet the plot seems tangled like a ball of thread, and at times you may scratch your puzzled head. The pacing uneven, the climax a bluff, the charm of the first, this one's not quite enough. The cinematography, however, deserves a nod, presenting Europe's beauty wide and broad. And the banter among the crew, clever and quick, keeps the film from becoming too thick. Yet as the credits roll, you may reflect and find the sequel's charm somewhat suspect. Yet it's not without humor and moments of luck. For Ocean's 12, I award it two and a half fucks. Fuck yeah. There you go. Two and a half fucks from the comic book guy. Did you give it two and a half fucks, Ivy? I gave it two and seven five. No, you gave it two and a half. You gave it two and a half there, sister. I wrote it down. Oh, you, I guessed you, that John was going to be predicted. two and seven half. You predicted. But I did two and a half. With 4.5 fucks from me, three and a quarter fucks from the professor, and two and a half fucks from the comic book guy, that gives Ocean's 12 an average of 3.4 fucks, which puts it in the 18th spot with Tangle and Cash, Summer School, It Chapter 1, and It Chapter 2. It is slightly better than The Greatest Showman, Big and Mall Rats, and slightly worse than Big Trouble in Little China, Heat, Peanut Butter Falcon, and Little Miss Sunshine. All right, that is going to wrap it up for this episode of Three Guys in a Flick. If you would like to know which movie we are going to be reviewing next, please check out our website. Uh, speaking of which, hey, John, where can they find us? They can always find us at www dot three guys in a flick.com where we go ahead and post all of our show notes blogs you can even go there and suggest a movie you would like us to review next you can find us at all of social media as well as any place that hosts podcasts all right i just want to thank zach ronnie and jill for listening keep on listening thanks zach thanks ronnie thanks jill and i want to thank ivy for coming out and talking a little oceans 12 with us do you have a good time i had a blast well good i'm glad you had a blast and I also want to thank anyone who else has suggested a movie and who listens. If you keep listening, we'll keep recording. For Three Guys in a Flick, I'm Don. I'm John. I'm Ken. And I'm Ivy. Thanks for listening. So I like that you and I seem to be on the same wavelength because... For how, the first time ever. Well, how did you feel about Say Anything? I, oh, yeah, I don't like that movie. There you go. This is why we can keep inviting that her That movie gives me the same energy as that one, what is it, the Blondie song? One way or another. One way or another. I'm going to get you. It, I'm look, also it's floored by The Greatest Showman being up there. That movie's trash. <laughs> <laughs> I hate that movie. You sure you you still want her to come Dick, back there, John? No, I really like to talk, and I'm yeah. like I have things to do, but I also don't want to be doing my job, so I chat with. <laughs> there you go. Can you hear me better now? 
I think so. Well, not, not, only when John stops fucking with his. I don't know. I'm sorry. that I am a mess. Um, <laughs> but you love me anyway. <laughs> now she has oh, a process. Oh, is it Logan? Of- like Logan Lerman? Who the fuck is Logan Lerman? Isn't that like a Marvel character? It's like an alter ego or something. Who was Wolverine? Now, Logan. Oh, okay. See? But not Logan Lerman. I, I know. There. Did you see the disappointment That's on John's face? I- Coming to you from Francis Talor's lake house on Lake Como, Italy. My name is Don. Wait, wait, wait. What? Francois. What did I say? Francis. Francis. Uh, do you have a porn name? I know mine. I know mine. You want to go first or you want me to go I'll first? I'll go first. Go ahead. Ocean's 12 inches. Oh, that's not bad. Orgasm's 12. Professor? No. <laughs> All right, fuck off. Good night.